God continues to lead us in his worship. Now from Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. It says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from evil every way, that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourselves have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Family of God, give attention to God's word as it will be proclaimed now. Please turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4. As well as in your notes, grab the outline. So we have a a massive meal in front of us today, massive by virtue, it's just great. One, one of the things I love about God's word is it's, it's so layered, and this passage is an incredible example of that. Um, I no doubt am not going to address everything in this text, and I will not address everything in my notes, no, no doubt. Um, but boy, I, I, we, we will certainly, uh, as we approach, let us approach with that desire and that passion and fellowship with Christ this very moment as he uh, brings us his, his word through the foolishness of preaching. I will read the, the text. Um, the, this is the fifth vision. And so there are eight visions, as you know, and the two center visions, four and five, are the key, are the focus of this entire um, section of eight visions. So um, we start outside of, um, of Jerusalem, and four and five were in the, the temple, and then we go from there. And so this is a really uh, important vision in the scope of the eight visions. And, uh, and you'll see why, if you haven't already studied it, you'll see why as we study it this morning. Please stand together with me as I read God's word. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and found me, uh, or I'm sorry, roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold and its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven sprouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I answered and said to of the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and said unto me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the house, and his hands will finish it. 
then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the gold, the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. That's Father, reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Open our eyes, O God, that we might behold wonderful things. Feed us richly, O Lord. Here are your servants with open mouths. Feed us richly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We live in a world that hates Christ. As Christians, it's not enough to know that the world in which we live, work, our work is tainted or our work is, is cursed. But to think that because of the world in which we live, any work that we might do for Christ will be opposed. Hear that. Any work that you will do for Christ will be opposed on this earth. That is why Psalm 126 describes ministry as sowing in tears and going to and fro weeping. It's a picture of ministry in this life. We see it in Jesus Christ. You realize Jesus Christ lived 33 years on this earth and every heartbeat was for the Lord. Christ did no one millisecond where he was not serving Christ. And yet at the end of 33 years, the last three of which were intensified ministry, he had nothing to show for it. Earthly speaking, nothing. All the disciples had left him. He died on a Roman cross alone, even bereft of his father. Brothers and sisters, you got to realize that's where ministry takes place in a state of sin and misery. Asaph, speaking of the lot of God's people in this world, wrote, Thou hast fed them with the bread of tears, and thou hast made them to drink tears in large measure. Jesus knew those tears. Isaiah 49 puts these words in his mouth. I have toiled in vain. I've spent my strength on nothing in vanity. Ian DeGuid wrote these words, How do you keep going when there is little to show for your labors? It is easy to preach if thousands flock to hear every word, easy to counsel people whose lives are healed by your, your wisdom, easy to lead when others are eager to follow. But how do you cope when the reality is the reverse and it seems that all your efforts go for nothing? I think we all can identify with that, can't we? You and I seek to minister the Lord in our parenting, in our marriages, in our work, and our service, and our walks. But how many here have not, in every one of those realms applicable to you, how many here have not at some point in your life raised your hands and said the words of Solomon, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. I feel like I'm beating the air. What is going on? That's where the people of God were to whom God sent Zechariah and Haggai when these two prophecies were written. 
They had returned with, with zeal and excitement and fanfare and joy in 538 to Palestine to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the, the city. 40,360 people. And by the time we get to our passage, most of those did not live in, in uh, Jerusalem. It's too hard, too difficult. For 17 years, they struggled. Oh, they struggled. They struggled to build the temple. 17 years later, it's not done. Their neighbors hate them. Their crops are cursed. You know, the only thing that they could say after 17 years that they might be tempted to say that they were successful at, God criticized their homes. God criticized them. Amazing. And so that, no doubt does Haggai and Zechariah find God's people in the dumps, in the doom and gloom of, 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 of men and women who have, who have been basically over, um, overtaken by the waves of life, struggling just to breathe, struggling just to get by. So God sent this prophet. And he brought this prophecy, both Haggai and Zechariah working in tandem, brought a message to God's people of hope and encouragement and strength. And that's where Zechariah is. He, he's, he's the first section of this book, the first eight visions, one through six, are, are um, specifically designed by God to attend to his people in that state that I just described. Each vision addresses the needs of, of, of weary saints, weary Christians, re- weary servants of God from different perspectives. And this morning, as well as last week, is the climax, which then is, it's not, um, it is, it's the mini uh, climax, which we're going to obviously look at the last of them. But it, it's the focus of the message he wanted his people to hear. God is thrilled with you. His radical grace has forgiven you, Ze- Zechariah 3. Now, Zechariah 4, what constitutes success in the kingdom of God? You see, these guys had been there 18 years, and they knew they were failures. Everything they tried was was a complete zero and a zilch, and the only thing they felt good about, their homes, God criticizes. Brothers and sisters, what constitutes successful kingdom ministry? You raise your, your, your kids and, and one grows up ungrateful and, 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 and all they seem that they can do is look at how you failed. And you look back and you go, man, what a horrible parent I've been. You, you've been married for multiple years and you're not the man or the woman you thought you'd be in marriage. And you look back and you go, what a, what a miserable excuse I, I've been. Lord, I'm just a failure. You think of evangelism, you think of, of discipleship, you think of biblical fellowship, and all of these things we fail at. And God sets the record straight this morning, saying to his people, this is what constitutes success in the kingdom of God. And so we're going to look at this. It's chiastic, our text is. Would you notice we had, it begins vision one, part one, or I'm sorry, vision five, part one, one through three. Then he gives an application of the vision, in part, um, which is part one, four through six. Seven is the focus of this chiasm. 
which I'm, I'm disagreeing with many commentaries who say six is the focus of this. It isn't of this uh, passage. Seven is. It's the focus of the chiasm. And then we have application part two, eight through ten, and then vision number five, part two, 11 through 14. Accordingly, I'm gonna, th- th- that sets the outline here. We're going to walk away through this passage looking at the focus of the chiasm first. Okay, verse 7. Then we're going to look at the first application, second application, second and third point. And then our last point will be looking at the vision. Once you see the center, you'll understand what the vision is a whole lot easier. So let's begin by looking at verse 7, point C, and the surprising message of this passage. Notice. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel, guys, however you pronounce it, let's just be uh, consistent and know what we're talking about. Before Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. The language of a mountain is used in scripture figuratively to refer to a combination of overwhelming circumstances in our lives. Spiritual, physical, emotional. For example, Isaiah chapter 40 Speaking figuratively of what God's people were going to face in exile. Isaiah 40 writes, Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be, will be made low. Yes, they were going to go there. Yes, they were going to struggle. But for the Messiah to be a benefit to them, they must, they must not allow the mountains of life to overwhelm them, but allow those mountains to drive them to, to Jesus Christ. Notice the word mountain there is used not literally, but figuratively, Isaiah or Matthew 17, using the same language, the same connotation, Christ said, For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall be moved. So again, this is not talking about a literal mountain. This is, this is talking about the mountains of burdens that rest upon you this very moment in your life. And if you and I will simply rely upon Christ, those mountains will go away. Now, don't misunderstand what that means. That doesn't mean they're going to disappear. That means the impact, the influence, the weight of those mountains are going to go away. 1 Corinthians 13 is what Paul's getting at when he talks about a faith that removes mountains. Well, in the life of Zerubbabel, he's the grandson of Jehoiakim, Therefore, he's of the royal house of David. And at this point, he's the governor, God's governor amongst God's people in the return. Well, in the life of Zerubbabel, the mountain, which is referenced here, was all that stood in the way of God's people as they endeavored to build the temple and eventually rebuild the city walls. Once again, Duguid put it this way, the great mountain encompasses both the practical difficulties of rebuilding such as the mountain of rubble that had to be overcome and the political difficulties of rebuilding, opponents, skeptics, enemies, and the spiritual difficulties of rebuilding, spiritual opposition and warfare of the kind that is evident in the previous chapter. <clears throat> well, get this, brothers and sisters. This massive obstacle, which had delayed God's people 17 years, would be completely muted if Zerubbabel would simply trust the Lord. Makes me think of Psalm 46, where the psalmist says, Cease striving and know that I am God. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of Jacob is our stronghold. That's in essence what, what this glorious message is. Zerubbabel, stop striving. Those mountains that are before you will be gone. If you'll simply, and I'm stealing from other parts of this a chapter, trust God. If you'll simply rely upon God. Those mountains will be gone. In fact, would you notice how it, how it ends? 7b. And he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. It's an incredible statement. The top stone in this context was the last, it's the ceremonial stone, the last stone that would be placed in the temple before everyone said it's done. So on that moment, on that glorious climactic day, when the temple, four years later, 516, is finished, and Zerubbabel takes the, the last stone and places it in its place. All of the congregation will be saying grace, grace to it. They'll be saying, Lord, bless this house. Bless this house. God is telling this man in four short years, it's going to be done. Think about it. The temple took Solomon, who had an army at his disposal, 12 years to build Zerubbabel is going to rebuild it in four. And God is saying, brothers and sisters, this is what your future holds. And from this incredible statement, we conclude this, this very humble yet exciting statement. Brothers and sisters, God's kingdom work will succeed. If it's God's kingdom work, it will always succeed. You're going to be successful. That's the whole point of this chiasm. God's people, listen. You will succeed in this life because of Christ. You will succeed. Now, it may not be what you and I think, as we'll see. But you're going to succeed. If it's God's kingdom work, it will succeed. Whether you see it or not. Whether you, whether you, you and I are privileged to see the fruit or not. If it's God's kingdom work, it will will succeed. Amen. Think about that, brothers and sisters. I'm a parent. I'm a spouse. I'm a worker. Brothers and sisters, insofar as you are doing God's kingdom work, God's word will never return back void. All things work together for good. I mean, think of all the multiple. Daniel, the whole book of Daniel is written part of the... uh, of the message is God is a sovereign Lord whose work and will will be completed. That's the focus of this. You're going to succeed, Christian, no matter how weary you may be or how difficult and dark your day, you are going to succeed. Better yet, God is going to bring success in the context of his kingdom in and through you, and sometimes in spite of you. Amen. You got that, guys. Now, that's the message. Now, we're going to back up. What's, um, that brings us to the, the uh, question of how. If that is true, now I haven't defined what kingdom success is other than the fact is it's going, you're going to succeed. God's kingdom work is going to uh, succeed. Well, how does God bring about, or better yet, how does God bring about us, uh, um, a kingdom uh, success in us? Through us. That brings us to the first application, verses 4 through 6, the means. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. 
So we'll stop there. When I first read this, brothers and sisters, I thought, this sounds so condescending. You know, he, he shows him a vision of, of, this, of this candlestick or this, this menorah surrounded by two olive trees. And, and, and he says, I don't understand what this is. And the angel says, you don't know what that is? What are you, some idiot? He says, no, Lord, I don't. I'm an idiot. I mean, but brothers, see, that is not what's going on here. This is a rhetorical tool that teachers use all the time. Right? Hey, I got a question. Yeah. What about this? Really? Let me ask you a question. Look at the text closer. What does the text say? That's a rhetorical tool. All this, all this angel's doing here, don't get put off by that. And he does it again and again. You don't understand this? He's getting him to think. This technique works in Zechariah's life, okay? So notice, he says, you don't know what it is? He says, no, I don't. Okay, real uh, quickly, the, it, let me review it. The vision, one through three, is of this lampstand on each side. I got a picture there for, for you. Each side, you've got these olive trees, okay? That's what he sees. And the focus of this comes in verse six then. So this is the application. You will be a success. God's kingdom work cannot fail because the whole theme of Zechariah is the Lord of hosts. One of the themes. God is, as the God Almighty, he will have his will take place. If that's the case, then what is kingdom success? Verse 6. Then he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Incredible. Let's look at the two, the two phrases. By might. It's not by might. Referencing military strength or human prowess. Power. Choach. Referencing human um, strength, will, planning, or determination. It's not a matter of resources. And it's not a matter of how much you and I think. How much you and I plan. How much money we've got. How much time you've got this week to get that project done at work. It's not about that, brothers and sisters. Kingdom success does not involve those things. Now, get this. Those things are necessary on this side of the grave. We understand that by the sweat of the brow. But you've got going on in our lives as God's people this incredible um, coexistence of the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, the way things get done, is different from the kingdom of man. It makes me think, I was talking with my daughter years ago, uh, when she discovered quantum physics at, at CU. She said it was the most amazing thing. Because what happens with Newtonian physics doesn't work there. It's two different worlds. Right? So force is mass uh, times acceleration. That's Newtonian of physics. If you don't know how much force is exerted, take the mass of the object and see how fast it's going, and that will tell you what the, the force is. That equation doesn't work at the quantum level. We've got two different worlds, and we live in both of these worlds at the same time. And in the kingdom of man, by necessity, if you're a worker, if you're a salesman, if you're, you know, name it, you got to make those calls. You got to go to work. You got to, by the sweat of the brow, it's going to be done. But brothers and sisters, from this perspective of God's kingdom, the first thing, the main thing, the only thing is about trusting Christ. 
And that doesn't mean a mental, I trust you. It means a disposition of dependence and reliance upon him. That's verse 6. It's by my spirit. So Zechariah, it's not getting the right people in the right place place. It's not getting those Samaritans get out of your face. It's not, it's not doing all these things. Now, those things are going to be necessary in this world. We understand that. We got this combination of these two uh, kingdoms. All that stuff's necessary. But you got to understand, Christian, if you do all those things and you don't do it relying upon Christ, it's a failure. No matter how beautiful that temple may look at the end. You will have failed. Kingdom success is all about you and I. Get this. Do you think God really cared about the size or the glory of that, of that uh, temple? You can say, well, yeah, it may be in a momentary sense, sure. But from eternity? Do you think God really cares about all the different things you and I get burdened by? Like the set table, Martha. The, the, you know, the uh, silverware where it's supposed uh, to be. And, the, and, the, and uh, the piping hot meal served at the right perfect time. Does that really matter in eternity? You know what's going to matter is how often, more often than not, how we did it. And and how we do it in this text is relying upon Christ. In essence, which basically says, Lord, what I'm doing this moment is for you. Any sale, any... Anything I might learn in school, any paper I might write, any discipline that I do with my kids, I do it not to get results. I do it simply trusting in you to bring about your purpose and your will in your time. You see, our problem is this. We in our mind know what success is. Success as a parent is my kids never embarrassing me. When I say jump, they jump. And oh, more importantly, they love Jesus. Yes, of course, let's not uh, forget that. But they do all of that and they make me look good. That's success. And instead, I've got a child who, who's not doing that or whatever, right? Brothers and sisters, success is not measured in Scripture so much by the fruit, because that's God, but by how you do your work. Zechariah, for the last 17 years, you all have been trying to do it in your own strength. And you've been discouraged and frustrated. Zechariah, do it in mine. And what a difference that makes in our minds. It means we get out of the business of building our kingdom. And so depend upon the Spirit of God as the Lord brings about His purpose in our lives. It means serving, parenting, working, laboring with open hands before the Lord, relying upon his power to bring about the results. It means living by faith and not by manipulation, argumentation, or any other fleshly or worldly strategy. When we do our work in reliance upon Christ, it is then that we see the straight path of the Lord. Isn't that what Solomon's saying in Proverbs 3? Trust in the Lord. Notice, in life, this is your life call. How? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, make God big. Live in light of the bigness of your God. Acknowledge God. And your path will not be a mirandering, this Mirani, I'm sorry, mirandering stream, if I'm saying it right, um, of, well, I'm going to try this. Well, that failed. I'm going to try this. Well, that failed. I'm going to try this. Well, that failed. I'm going to try this. That failed. Whether it be parenting, pastoring, marriage, school, work, name it. I'm not going to, guys, your, your, your path will be straight. The sense of 
which gives this sense of peace. That's the idea of a straight path. Peace and confidence that where I am is where God wants me to be. Why? Because I'm simply doing what God wants me to do. I am trusting God. This is an act unto the Lord. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. God's holiness is not only about his righteousness, says Miller, but also about his power. The job we have to do, we cannot do in our own power. We work hard, but we must realize that we are also spectators, watching from the sidelines to see what God is doing. Our work will never be about ourselves as conquerors. It will only be about God, the conqueror. This is how it was for Moses, and this is how it will be for us. I quoted that in the context of Haggai, so you've heard that before, but it fits here. Brothers and sisters, it's not about us. It's about God's kingdom, and thus, what is our call to do? Simply rely upon Christ. Be faithful. That's the call. Rely upon Christ. All right, that then brings us then to the second, as we walk way out, the second application, which is 8 through 10. Because of that, right, you and I will be a success insofar as you and I are simply trusting upon the Spirit. By the Spirit, not by me, okay? Notice the consequence, how that life, that mentality changes how we look at life. Notice with me, application to the, the consequence, 8 through 10. Also, the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me. That tells you the context in which Zechariah was writing. These people were persecuting. These people were not accepting. They were making fun of Zechariah's youth. And um, in this context, he says, he repeats what he says in verse 7, and that is Zechariah, Zerubbabel is going to finish this temple. He began it, and he's going to finish it. And when that happens, everyone are going to know a lot of things. But one thing they're going to know is that you, Zechariah, are indeed a prophet. And that goes on to then verse 10. Because of this truth, I'm building my kingdom. God builds his kingdom. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's God who builds it. Our job is simply to trust. When that happens, God then comes to verse 10 and says, For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. All right. 11 is a difficult verse, the last part of it. It's reminiscent of what we just saw in chapter 3, verse 9. The seven eyed or seven faceted stone well now we have a seven eyes of the lord and what is that i don't know and i don't know if any commentary really does who knows what this is however we get a little bit more detail here and that is that we are told that that god's eyes go to and fro throughout the the earth and that's a colloquialism in scripture to describe the fact that god is omniscient and omnipotent so whatever this means It is making an incredible declaration that the Lord we serve knows everything that's going on and is upholding everything going on. Okay, he knows it because he's ordaining it. He's determined it. So it's this glorious statement that he's the Lord of hosts. He's the God Almighty. He's in charge of all things. And because he's the God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, in charge of all things, the call is do not despise the day of small things. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me give you the historical background. And I'm going to, for that, I'm going to go back to read Haggai chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Notice, on the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying. 
Now the language, we, if you recall that, the language, the, 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 the time indicator in verse 2 or verse 1 is important because this is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which means Jerusalem would be packed with people. Now, the temple building, if you remember Haggai, has been going on for, for, for 26 days. Okay, they started again, and 26 days later is now Haggai chapter 2. And the city is crowded with people, crowded to overflowing. And you can imagine the rumor had gone out that they were starting to rebuild the temple again. So you can imagine all these pilgrims excited to see, you know, the walls up perhaps by now. Who knows what they're going to find, you know. Uh, maybe something, you know. And they get there, and it, it looks like they hadn't done a thing, if you remember the context. In fact, in verse 3, notice what we, what we read, or, or, or verse 2, excuse me, through 3. We read, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatael, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in a comparison? Remember when we looked at that, Haggai doesn't can code it. Haggai's right on. Guys, this is, this is horrible. We've done nothing. The, the temple is in a horrible state. By way of footnote 2, Haggai 2.1, the time indicator, I didn't share it then, I'll share it now. That also is the anniversary when Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant into the finished temple. And God's people would have known that. So on that very day in Haggai chapter 2 verse 1, they've got the finished tabernacle or, or finished temple of Solomon in their minds. That this was the day our great-great-grandparents celebrated the finished temple. And this is the temple. And you've been working on it for how long, Zerubbabel? And because of that, there was a lot of, a lot of criticism. Now, if you recall the message of Haggai 2, God's word of consolation to um, Joshua and Zerubbabel was, I'm with you, so depend upon me. So it's very similar to where we are now. I'm with you. Don't fear, I'm with you. Yes, it may look bad, but brothers and sisters, I'm with you. And then Zechariah adds to that in our text this morning, with these words, do not despise the day of small things. What's he mean by that? Because I'm with you. Because God's work will be a success. Rely upon him and don't despise the day of small things. Well, what is that? Let me ask you something. If you're going to go on a hundred mile hike, Appalachian Trail, whatever, what's the first thing you'd have uh, to do? Take one step. That's a small thing. Don't despise that. Imagine you got a child born who would be the greatest mathematician ever in the history of the world. That that child would have to learn one plus one is two at some point in his life. And if he didn't learn that, he would never be the greatest mathematician. The greatest orator began by saying one word, usually mama or dada. You realize that? Now, we look at a baby going, mama. Now, we might think that's a big thing, so maybe not. Maybe his third word, right? Don't despise the day of small things. A hundred-mile you know, hundred journey. Guys, all you got to do is one thing. Just take a step. Would you quit saying that? You're so stupid. Why are you saying that? I'm tired. It's hot. I want to go home. No, just take one more step. 
That kid just learned one plus one is two. My kid learned that when he was three years younger than yours. <laughs> I love the story of the, the little kid standing by the prison, you know, visiting his, his, his parent who's in prison. And he's out and some guy breaks out of prison and says, I'm free, I'm free. And the boy says, so big deal, I'm four. <laughs> okay, don't despise the day of small things. Do you understand what this is getting at? Well, let's look at it. The very end, or, or not the very end. Notice with me once again the text before us, verse 10. And uh, as, he re- as, as we read it, notice it says, For who has despised the day of small things? But, when they, but these seven, will, and these seven are, are references God, will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The background behind that's this. Well, you got a picture of a plumb line. It's a stick or it's a string with weight. And it's used in building. So Zerubbabel is on the Temple Mount at some point, And the people are there expecting to see great things, a success. And Zerubbabel is there standing next to boulders bigger than a man. Boulders that might take a week just to move. That's why it took him four years. So he's standing by boulders that are massive, charred remains with a string and a plumb line. You can imagine people laughing and saying, look at that buffoon. What a gorilla. What a loser. Look at that guy. He thinks that's going to, hey, hey, Zerubbabel, move that stone with that. Let's see you do it. And you can imagine the laughter and the jokes in 520 B.C. But brothers and sisters, what does the text say? The text says God was glad when he saw the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. Do you understand? We, we, tend to, we, we have our vision, our goal for what we want, and we think that's, that's what's successful. You know what successful in God's eyes are? It's not the results. God's never called you to results in ministry. Simply being faithful to rely upon Christ. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And when you do that, it changes the way you view the world. You realize, brothers and sisters, you know what matters most? Are the small things. God delights in the small things. My boss might be saying, man, I want the bottom line, but God delights in the small things. Being honest when no one cares. Doing a job right when no one's watching. Getting up early in the morning to spend time with the Lord. Forcing yourself to think the best when everyone wants you to think the worst. Being faithful when those closest to you say, curse God and die. It's easy to say when you look at small things, so what? What difference does it make if I'm in the word of God on a daily basis? What difference does it make if I continue to pray? What difference does it make if, if I uh, continue to doing these same things over and over and over and I never get a success? By definition, isn't that the definition of insanity? Yeah, I should quit. I should stop. I should try something else. Because if these things aren't working, they must not work. Brothers and sisters, God says don't despise small things. You may never see the fruit in your life, but God's kingdom work will take place. That's the whole point, verse 7. How does it take place? As you and I trust upon Christ, rely upon Christ, and therefore not despise small things in our lives, but remain faithful, hard at it, when the world says curse God and die. Now that brings us then lastly to the basis. 
You can read Sinclair's sermon notes, or at least his quote in this sermon he preached. Um, fantastic. But notice the basis, the vision proper. Verses 1 through 3 now. Notice. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and, and roused me as a man who was awakened from the sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it. And it's seven lamps with its seven sprouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and one on the left side. So brothers and sisters, we have this vision of a lampstand and the trees. Zechariah, for, or I'm sorry, yeah, Zechariah, for whatever reason, is transfixed by the two um, olive trees, which he's going to get to, the angel will. But the angel doesn't, doesn't answer it. What do I see? You know, Lord, what are the olive trees? And, and the angel answers the significance. What are the olive trees? And the answer uh, keeps on going. But notice of the elements that are there, the focus of this vision is on that lampstand. Now, he's in the temple, so let's, let me talk with you about the lampstand quickly. The lampstand that was built, that was put in, that was created in gold, placed in the holy place, along with the showbread and the altar of incense, each of those vessels spoke to a different facet of, dedica- of dedication. And, the, and the, the golden lampstand, the golden lamp, spoke to abiding in Christ. Union. It's, it, it, was, it, it was made to look like a vine where the branches, seven branches, were God's people. And as they abided in that vine, Christ is the vine, John 15, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That's the picture here. That golden lampstand pictures union with Christ, abiding in Christ, which is the point of Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, not by power, but by abiding by the Spirit, relying upon God. That's the focus of this vision. However, there's some unique uh, changes. Notice with me the first one. Unlike the lampstand in the temple whose wicks and oil had to be trimmed twice a day because the little tiny vessel that kept that light going was not very big. So the priest had to go in the morning and the night to trim it. This one has this massive bowl, as the picture shows, which lights the seven lamps. As we'll get to, that tells us that these lamps will never run out. In other words, the resource of oil that is given to light those lamps is eternal, as we'll get to. Secondly, would you notice, on top of or with these lamps, unlike the lampstand in the temple, these seven lamps have seven wicks. And that's the point of the, the phrase um, that you read there. Um, that these, these lights, these um, lamps, these seven lamps have seven wicks attached to them. Seven sp- spouts in my text belonging to each of the lamps. I got a picture for you of, a, of an ancient lamp. It was a very common lamp in the ancient world. had seven wicks. Okay, this lamp, each one had seven wicks. Now, in, that means that there were not just seven lights that were now burning from that, that lamp. But seven times seven. Do you understand that? Each lamp it contains seven little lamps. So seven wicks times seven lamps is 49. And that is massively significant if you're a Jew. Just like 9-11 is significant if you live in America. If I did a documentary on, on terrorism and I, said, and I said nine planes, 11 targets... And I kept saying that throughout the entire show. Nine planes, 11 targets. It wouldn't take much for you to go 9-11, not 9-11. 
We all know what 9-11 stands for. That's what would have been the response of Zechariah or Zerubbabel at this statement. Seven times seven, 49. Okay, this is um, a, 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 a proclamation. There's one thing in Judaism that this was a proclamation of, the year of Jubilee. Do you understand that? The picture here is incredible. Brothers and sisters, as you and I sup upon Christ, as you and I trust him, you know what we enter into? The year of Jubilee, where sins are forgiven, debts restored, slaves freed. So the more you and I rely upon Christ, the more we'll enjoy the fruit of redemption. And the more we rejoice, we enjoy the fruit of redemption, the more we will, we will, we will abide in Christ. It's circular. And thus our focus of our ministry in life will not be earthly results, but just simply being successful in abiding in Christ. That's what lights the candle. It's beautiful. Brings, that brings us now to vision point two, part two, 11 through 12. Then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the lampstand on its left? Zechariah can't give it up. Um, and, I, and I answered a second time. The angel didn't answer. I answered a second time, which really is a third time because he keeps on asking. But now the result of the angels holding him off, not answering him, but not um, gets him to think. So he refines his question. And I said, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil? The angel is, now you're talking. Now you're talking. We learned from this image that the olive trees, second picture, have these pipes or these tubes that provide the bowl of oil with an eternal flow of, of olive oil. Which means, brothers and sisters, the picture is beautiful. You can't out rely upon Christ he'll never let you down he'll always meet your needs simply and not by might not by power trust in the Lord with all your heart don't lean on your on your understanding and all your ways acknowledge him make him big make the cross of Christ big in your lives and brothers and sisters that's success and then would you notice when, when, when we're now satisfied amen Lord we're not done yet because he's going to answer the question that Zachariah's been asking throughout the entire time. What are the olive trees? Notice with me verse 13. So, speaking of the two trees. So he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. They said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing, note the word, by the Lord of the whole earth. Initially, this is Zechariah, or Zerubbabel, and Joshua. No question about it. Initially. But the question is, what do they ultimately represent? What are those trees ultimately representing? Well, we get an idea by the word by in the Hebrew. He doesn't say these are the two, uh, these are our two anointed ones who stand with, who stand for. The text says he stands by, which tells us he's in the presence of God this moment. Now, we know from, from um, Haggai 2, Zerubbabel was a signet ring. We know that um, Zechariah 3 Joshua and his fellow priests were a symbol, and therefore we recognize that, the, that those trees are not, are not specifically Joshua and Zerubbabel, but what they represent, the priestly office and the royal office, who is Jesus Christ, who stands by the Lord. 
So get this. As you and I abide in Christ, specifically take comfort and refuge in his priestly work of sacrificing for your sin and praying for you at all times. And then we take comfort and refuge in his, in his royal robe, uh, role, uh, specifically his protection. He's the Lord of hosts who upholds and protects and therefore cannot be stopped, cannot be thwarted. We can go about our work knowing we cannot be anything else but a success insofar as we rely upon Jesus Christ. Incredible. And that's this fourth or fifth uh, vision. It's family of God. You're living in a difficult day. Let's, let's end this. You're living in a difficult time. Your labor doesn't seem like it's producing a lot of fruit. And so it's easy to give up on my marriage, give up on my schooling, give up on my, on my parenting, giving up on a relationship, giving up on fellowship, giving up on caring. But God says, Christian, stop thinking of success from a worldly realm. I will bring it to pass. Your call simply is to abide, rely, Take each step saying, Lord, I do this unto your glory and praise. Bring the results as as you will. I do this to your glory and praise. Each step, don't despise small things. I'm I'm going to be in your word again, even though I don't think it's having any impact in my life. Don't worry about the fruit. Be faithful to the Lord. Trusting God, I love you. You've accepted me. Now use this unto your glory and praise. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible vision uh, chapter you've given us and lord i know i've done so poorly in explaining it but god i pray that in spite of me you would bring apart bring to pass the fruit that you would work in each and every one of our lives father look at a passage like this i find myself inspired lord that weariness that 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 that's upon the back and those weights and those heaviness things of just living life in a state of sin and misery seems so light when I realize oh God you do the lifting we simply rely God give your people that grace to rely to know that they are a success in your eyes because of your grace and because of your cross that, Lord, we as a people would get out of the business of results. And we will, Lord, be faithful simply to loving you. Communing with you. Fellowshipping with you. For it's by your spirit, by this grace, that, Lord, you build kingdoms. Lord, do the work, we pray. And though we today say we may never see the results... God, may that not be the issue in our lives. Give us grace, O Lord, simply to see Christ. And so abide, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.